Good morning, City Light. My name is Doug, and I get to follow Jesus with all of you. You know, throughout history, there have been famous battle cries. These shouts that warriors or soldiers or kings would make as their way of proclaiming victory. My high school's mascot was the Raiders, and no one really knew why, but our battle cry was Rojo. There was this part of the fight song when we would all pump our fist in the air and shout, Rojo. I loved shouting Rojo, especially after a victory. Every team has their battle cry, and maybe the most famous shout of celebration and cry of victory has come to be, we're going to Disney World. After an entire season of workouts and practices and games and on-field battles, after enduring the regular season, making the playoffs, going on a streak through the playoffs and reaching the pinnacle of their sport, whenever someone wins the Super Bowl or the World Series or the NBA championship with champagne exploding and goggles on, they shout, we're number one, we're going to Disney World. It's their cry of victory. Maybe a little more serious, leading up to the historic D-Day parachute jump. The men of the 101st Airborne Division, they were whipped into shape. They were trained at this Camp Tekoa down in Georgia. And dominating the landscape of Camp Tekoa was a 1,740-foot Mount Curahi. Not that tall of a mountain if you're from Colorado, but it's really tall if you're one of those soldiers who has to run sprints or do bear crawls up and down Mount Curahi. And when those soldiers started making practice parachute drops, as they jumped from the planes, they would shout to each other, Curahi, as their way of paying tribute to the mountain of their training. And then on that fateful D-Day, as they leaped to their deaths, but their deaths led to our victory, the men would shout to one another, even as they were falling, Curahi. It was their cry of victory. There have been hundreds of battle cries, thousands of shouts of victory from the most fierce of warriors all the way to the mom whose three-month-old stayed asleep as she quietly pulled her hand out from under her head. Victory, right? We love victory. We're Americans, after all, and that's what Americans do. We win. We stomp out the opposition. We conquer the hill. We seize the day. America, right? We love being a victory, but more important than American, deeper than any patriotism, stronger than any national bond, many of us in this room, we are followers of Jesus, and we have sworn our allegiance to him. We have given our trust and our lives over to Jesus. And this morning, we're going to see our King, our Savior, our Sovereign, our God, our Lord, crucified. He was killed on a cross and historically proven no smoke and mirrors, clearly and decisively dead. There's something in us that craves victory, but we need to see our Savior crucified. And I don't want to be morbid any more than any of you do, but the truth is true. 
and the cross was real. Next Sunday, we will celebrate the resurrection, right? But this week, we look at the death that preceded the resurrection. Next Sunday, the sun will rise with shouts of victory. But this Sunday, we have to remember that dark day, those gloomy clouds and the sour taste of death. The story of Jesus' crucifixion takes up the whole of John chapter 19. And in the story, John is honest about the pain that Jesus goes through, but he isn't gruesome or gory in his level of detail. And for our purposes this morning, we're going to zoom our focus into verses 28 through 30 that Jason just read. If you have your Bibles or your app, look at verses 28 and 29 with me. The story goes like this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This is Jesus' last drink, his last tiny bit of comfort, sour as it was before he died. He had just endured a terrifying amount of torture. He had been sleepless for more than a day. He had been betrayed, questioned, slapped, denied, lied about, flogged, mocked, isolated, nailed, and left alone. To say the least, Jesus was exhausted, and he was thirsty. And when you just step back a little bit from the thirst of Jesus, and you look at his need for a drink, it reminds us just how weak how common, even how shameful the death of Jesus was. The thirst of Jesus shows us the shame of the cross. Here's what I mean. Jesus was rejected by his own people. He was cast out from his hometown. He was chewed up and spit out by the masses. His own closest followers denied him and betrayed him, and the rulers and the leaders of that day mocked him. So by this point in his life, Jesus, if anything, was rejected. He was shamed. Just another name, just another death on the cross. If you look at John 19 verse 18, it's written like this, there they crucified him, and with him Two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. You can almost hear just how common this was. Jesus was crucified, and oh yeah, a couple of others were crucified with him. Now, 2,000 years later, where we are, the death of Jesus seems special, but on that day, if you were a soldier doing your job, it was no big deal. Just another hammer blow, just another death, clock in, clock out, go on with your life. If you were a tourist on your way to Jerusalem for the Passover, it was no big deal. It was another fool shamed on the cross. Hundreds of thousands of people died this way. The Romans were known for crucifying people by thousands at a time. To them, Jesus was just another number, just another crazy to quiet down. He had to carry his own cross, just like all of the others. He was led up to Golgotha's Hill, 
just like all of the others. He was nailed to that cross, just like the others. He was stripped of his clothes, and the soldiers gambled for his clothes, and his family watched from a distance, just like all of the others. And Jesus got thirsty, just like all of the others. Can I invite you this morning to see the death of Jesus in all of its plainness? In all of its mundaneness, I know that a major world religion grew out of this moment. And I know that many of us in this room, we love and adore and trust the man on that cross. But I think if we were there in that moment, watching from a distance, it would be so easy for it to seem like no big deal. Common, boring, shameful. Let's just get on with our lives, do our thing, and try to forget this sight of death that we have to walk by. That's how the vast majority of the world responded to Jesus' death that day. Who cares? Sure, Jesus' mom and his um, aunt and his follower, John, they were there, but everyone else was done with Jesus. He was a has-been. He had his shot, his moment, his time to shine, but now that has passed. It's too late. Jesus was just another statistic, another flash in the pan, another wannabe who no one cares about anymore. Can you imagine that response to the cross of Jesus. Can you feel it, maybe even just for a moment? Because when I'm honest, it's how I respond many days to the death of Jesus. I'm the soldier gambling for his clothes at the foot of the cross. Who cares about the man on the cross? I just want his clothes. Who cares about the man on the cross? I just want his benefits. Or I'm the tourist who's passing by on my way to Jerusalem. Who cares about the man on the cross? I've got errands to run. I've got people to see and things to do. You see, Jesus' death so easily fades into the background of my life. It's there, and I wouldn't deny it, but it's pushed to the background for me to either use or ignore as I choose. He gets blurred out by all the noise of my life. Jesus' death isn't attractive or fun. It doesn't scroll easily on my phone, and frankly, it makes most conversations incredibly awkward. And just like Jesus was another number to the Romans, just another name to deal with, so it can be easily in our lives, Jesus becomes just another name. Have you ever had that experience for a while? Jesus is at the center of all that you do and you build your life around him. But then time passes and passions fade. Life gets busy and your heart grows cold and you know that Jesus is real. You know that his death should matter, but why bother now? I'm just too busy. Honestly, before I can ever boast of my allegiance to the man on the cross, I have to admit that I've used him. 
Before I ever bowed down to him, I borrowed from him. Before I ever surrendered to him, I stole from him. I'm the soldier gambling for his clothes. I'm the tourist passing by and looking the other way. Can I ask, what about you? Where are you in the story of Jesus' death? I mean, we're all in the story somewhere. We all connect with the characters in different ways. The bad news is we're not Jesus. But the good news is Jesus is in the story. And whether you're the soldier or you're the tourist or you're the family watching from a distance, Jesus died for all of us. When we own it, that we use his death for our gain, Jesus responds with love and grace. When we own it, that we are the tourists passing by and his death has faded into the background of our lives, Jesus responds with love and grace. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. City Light, wherever you find yourself in the story, you can stop right now, turn and stare. You can behold the man on the cross and trust that he died for you. He isn't waiting for you to get your act together, but he is inviting you to turn to him, to see him there, to trust him there, to behold him on the cross and give him your life. We are all in this story, and no matter which character you most connect with, whether it's the soldier, a tourist, or the family, Jesus' death is for you. That's why he's there in the first place, on the cross, in our place, for you. So when we step back and we see Jesus' weakness, his thirst, it reminds us of the, the shame of the cross And in some ways, it kind of puts us in our place. It reveals our hearts. It reveals who we really are. But in John chapter 19, we don't only see the shame of the cross. We also see the shock of the cross. The surprise of the cross. Look at verse 30 with me and watch this. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It looks like it's just another normal moment. Maybe the final moment. There's a few words, a last breath, and then death. But there was nothing normal about this moment. There was nothing normal about those words. There was something supernatural Something shocking about this man on the cross. The Gospel of Matthew describes this dying moment of Jesus like this. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Mark writes it like this. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Luke gives us a little more detail when he writes, 
Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Luke tells us one of the things that Jesus said. It was a cry of surrender to his Father in heaven. But John tells us another thing that Jesus said, and it was a cry of victory. This phrase, it is finished, is only one word in the original Greek, the language that John used to write his story. I'm going to attempt to pronounce it, tetelestai. It was the cry of Greek athletes after they finished and won their race. Tetelestai, it is finished. It was the cry of warriors when they returned home after winning the battle. Tetelestai, it is finished. And it was the cry of Jesus as he breathed his last on the cross. Tetelestai, it is finished. When Jesus drank the sour wine and said, it is finished, that was his battle cry. His shout of victory. It was his roho. I'm going to Disney World. Cura he can't hold me down, can't stop me now, can't back down, won't quit, can't lose. Shout of victory to Telestai. It is finished. How in the world can Jesus cry out in victory? when he's being crucified next to some other criminals outside of Jerusalem? How in the world can Jesus be claiming victory as he's breathing his last? Well, John answers that question for us as he tells the story. Now remember, John's goal in writing this isn't to produce scientific research, though it is a true story. John's goal isn't to entertain, though it is certainly dramatic. John's goal isn't to defend or dazzle, but his goal is to invite. To invite you and me to believe in this man on the cross. John 19 verse 35 is John's moment of showing his cards. He says, hey, I've written these things. Why? So that you may believe him. John wants us to find this man on the cross, Jesus Christ, worthy of our time, our lives, our heart, our treasure, our everything. So John, help me understand this. How can Jesus shout in victory even as he dies? First reason is this, because it was all planned out, then played out exactly according to how Jesus wrote the script. From Pilate's fear of man early on in the chapter to the soldiers gambling to the sour wine, none of it caught Jesus by surprise. Before the world began, before the foundations of this earth, this moment, this sacrifice, this man, Jesus Christ, it was all planned out and Jesus himself wrote the script. Look at verse 24 of chapter 19. The soldiers are gambling for Jesus' clothes. They're amazed at his seamless tunic. And John says this, this was to, what's the next words? Fulfill the script 
sure, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lot. The soldiers just thought they were doing their job and having some fun. John's going, oh no, you're playing your part perfectly according to how Jesus wrote you into the script. Verse 28, when Jesus is thirsty, he says, I thirst. Why, Jesus? To fulfill the scripture. So Jesus' humanity, his thirst, his need, his ache, they are all part of the plan. And Jesus plays his part with dignity and obedience to the Father. Then after his death, some soldiers come to break his legs and hasten his death, but they find him already dead. So instead of breaking his legs, they pierce his side. And then John writes in verses 36 and 37, these things took place, why? That the scripture might be fulfilled. And again, another scripture says, do you see what John's doing here? Are you picking this up? As he tells the story of the death of Jesus, he's showing us the rule of Jesus. Jesus was fully, completely, and absolutely in charge. The gambling, the clothes, the sour wine, and the piercing, they were all part of the plan. And the one hanging on the cross in utter need and thorough desperation was in complete control. That's why he can say, to Telestai, it is finished. There's another reason. How can Jesus shout in victory even as he dies? Because his life was never taken from him. John 10 verse 18. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus makes this audacious claim that no one can take his life. No one can kill him. No one can off him. It would be his own life to lay down in love for his people and in obedience to his father. Jesus' life was never taken from him. We get a snapshot of this when Jesus and Pilate are dialoguing earlier in John 19. Pilate says, don't you know that I have the authority to have you crucified or let you live? And Jesus is like, oh, bro, really? Because all authority you have, you have no authority unless it was given to you from above. No one took Jesus's life. He had all authority. So John 19 verse 30 tells the story of his final breath this way. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. No one ever took Jesus's life from him. He gave it up for us. No one stole Jesus's life. He laid it down. He ran the race, finished the course, completed the task, and now Jesus could give up his life, lay down his life like an athlete rest after the championship game. Like a warrior rests after he returns from the battle, so Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit to Telestai. It is finished. City Light, listen, when we behold the man upon the cross, we see the warrior returning after the battle winning the victory. When we see him breathe his last, we see the athlete rewarded. When we behold the servant sacrificing himself for his own, we see our king enthroned. 
To so many on that day and this day, the cross is merely, um, it is merely a man-made, mundane, and shameful way of suppressing rebellion. But to those who believe, it is the coronation of our king. It's the victory of our warrior. It is the reward for our champion. To the world, the cross is folly. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Make no mistake, the cross was no defeat. The cross wasn't plan B or mess up or mistake or oh crud. No, the cross was plan A, planned out, script written, parts played, scene directed, true story. It was a can't hold me down, can't stop me now, won't turn back and won't give up victory. It was to telesty, it is finished. So what might this mean for us, right? Like we're on the backside of 2,000 years reading some red letters on shiny pages or scrolling through our screens. We'll leave here today in our cars or trucks or minivans or lots of minivans and we'll go about our day doing stuff, running errands, eating food, being around people. And this, this cross moment sure seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? Sure seems disconnected from now, disconnected from like our normal lives today. What does this mean for us today? I think John would ask us this. Will you believe him? When he takes the sour wine upon the cross and he shouts in victory... Will you believe him? When Jesus says, it is finished, will you believe him? Will you believe that your religious performance and try harder and do better way of living is finished? You can never measure up or make up or dress up enough to get in God's good graces. But Jesus has performed for you and finished for you, and he can cover up all of your mess ups and screw ups. Will you believe Jesus when he cries, man-made morality is finished. The law of God has been fulfilled. Will you believe, Jesus, that your dark stains and your heavy shame is finished? Jesus takes that upon himself. He can wash you clean and make you new. Your shame is no longer stuck to you. Your shame was put on the Christ on the cross, and he put it to shame. Will you believe Jesus when he says, your shame is finished. Will you believe that though he may roar and stomp, Satan is finished. His fangs have been removed. Jesus delivered the death sentence and exposed him for the fraud that he is. On the cross, Jesus triumphed over his enemy and our enemy and the victory is sure. So will you believe Jesus when he says, Satan is finished. 
Will you believe that your cravings and your lust for sin are finished? They no longer have a hold on you. You don't have to return to that pit or bow to that idol or surrender to that sin because Jesus paid the price for it, shut down its power, and will rescue you from it. Will you believe Jesus when he says, your sin is finished? You see, when we believe Jesus, it isn't like believing in an Easter bunny or a tooth fairy. When you believe in those things, it adds a little bit onto your life. But when you believe Jesus, you are banking your heart, your hopes, your life on a real man who really lived and really died. And when you believe Jesus, it doesn't just add a little bit onto your life. It changes everything in your life. When you believe Jesus' cry that man-made morality is finished, it sets you free to obey God from a joyful heart. When you believe Jesus' cry that shame is finished, it gives you hope to shine the light of Jesus in your life, your words. When you believe Jesus' cry that Satan is finished, it gives you the courage to face your greatest fears in the name of Jesus. And when you believe Jesus' cry that sin is finished, it gives you the power to live like Jesus and Until he returns for us. Until King Jesus comes to get us. King Jesus, the one whose crown was thorns. The one whose throne was a cross. The one who finished it for us. And will come back for us. Amen, church? Amen. Would you pray with me? And as we pray, let me just say, There is no need to rush. No need to rush. We have built this morning so that you could have time now to do business with Jesus, to listen to his voice. Would you just take the next few moments and talk with God? And here's a question I'd like for you to ask him. Ask yourself, what needs to be finished in your life? What needs to be done? It's finished. It's done. Maybe it's a man-made morality. It's a religion where you're trying to measure up and stand up and show God that you're worth it, that you can meet his demands. And it's exhausting you, exasperating you. This morning, can you say, my false religion is done. Jesus measured up for me. Jesus covers up all of my mess-ups. Jesus fulfilled the law of God. And when I trust him, That gets credited to me. Maybe this morning you need to believe that your shame is finished. Something was done to you or you did something and you've carried that shame ever since then. And this morning you need to just surrender that shame and say, it's finished, it's done. 
That's on Jesus. He bore that shame on the cross. Maybe this morning you need to believe that Satan is finished. You feel him attacking you, bothering you, lying to you from all different angles. And you need to remember, you need to say, no, he's finished. Jesus has beaten him. Jesus has delivered the decisive death blow. Satan's fangs aren't there. Though he roar, he can't bite. Or maybe this morning you need to say that a particular sin, a hang-up, an addiction, man, it's finished. It's done. It doesn't hold sway over you any longer. The death of Jesus brought an end to it. There's no need for you to try to revive it. Oh, Father God, would you be working and moving in us this morning? Would you be speaking personally to your people? Would you be inviting us to see you on the cross and believe you? Believe you when you say, it is finished. Holy Spirit of God, would you apply that to our hearts? Would you apply that to our lives? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.